All right, everybody, this is our, one of our special Gen Con episodes. You are not going to get a, an individualized introduction for each of our Gen Con episodes, so this is the one that you'll hear over and over again. I am at Gen Con right now, uh, or was just at Gen Con, covering all kinds of things from Wizards of the Coast. I'm also going to be attending uh, the Kobold Press seminars, uh, going to some press events and more, possibly some interviews and that kind of stuff, so expect some more of that coming out, including this episode. And don't forget, these are relatively unedited. All I'm doing is slipping in the intro to the episode and the ad from our wonderful sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Otherwise, it is pure, unadulterated Gen Con material. And speaking of unadulterated, that means we're not responsible for the content. Some of it may be risky. We're looking at you, Matt James. (laughs) Uh, We'll try to outline that in the show notes, so pay attention. And remember that large, sometimes loud convention rooms or exhibit halls or giant floors where there's a recording going on and a thousand people standing around, that will impact some of the audio quality. It may not be the best audio quality, but I guarantee you that the content will be the best content from Gen Con. And as we move into the the content that you're looking for... The, the thing that you're tuning in for here, we should mention, again, our sponsor is Noble Knight Games at noblenight.com. Check them out. They're a great game store specializing in out-of-print materials, but also carrying the newest in, in game books and, and other materials. Uh, so check them out and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And with that, enjoy the coverage from Gen Con. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. Come. Yes, we would love tickets. I will walk around and take tickets because they have us to do it. Thank you. you. Yeah, I'm checking these things. Uh, so there are a million tickets. If we show them a lot of tickets, they let us hold the Wait, summer. there's no charge for this event? I know. We're giving this info for free? They promised me 50% of the gate. What? And they delivered. Yes. They didn't make a promise they couldn't keep. Yes. The other bit of housekeeping is, hey, we'd love if you signed up for the Cobalt Newsletter. It comes out... Once a month, sometimes twice, if we're ambitious. Uh, We hope to have a full Gen Con report in the next issue. Uh, It's called the Cobalt Courier. We do deals, we do giveaways, we do contests. We announce our next next open call for publication, that kind of stuff. So if you're interested, please sign up. If you hate it, unsubscribe. 
Um, I'll just put those out there and collect them later. So this is the Killer Adventures, 30 Minutes to a Better DM. Hello, Indianapolis. <laughs> uh, we are going to talk about being a ruthless game master, uh, the most important elements of game prep, how you keep players riveted when they're busy checking their messages, um, and some tips and tricks. There's supposed to be four of us on this panel, but a couple are running late. So, it's me and Brandon. I will introduce myself. My name is Wolfgang Bauer. I am the publisher and owner and general lackey uh, at Cobalt Press. We publish mostly for Pathfinder and also the Cobalt Guide series. With me? I am Brandon Hodge. I'm the lackey's lackey. Um, I have worked on such adventures with open design as Halls of the Mountain King and Penned Sunken Empires, and I'm one of Paizo's freelancers on their Adventure Path line, writing such titles as Shadows of Gallowspire, Dead Heart of Zen, mm-hmm. and the recent Rasputin Must Die. Yay, Rasputin Ooh. Must Die. So you would do occasional game mastering in that context, you would say? One, yes. In between <laughs> the writing, I managed to find time to run games. All right. Uh, I want to know, first of all, let's be clear. Everyone here is a game master, yes? No players. Any players? Put your hands right. up. Right. <laughs> all right. So this is the secret stuff. We're not telling them. Um, how long have people been playing? I, I kind of guess that we have some veterans here. So let's say... Uh, who's been playing for two or game mastering for two years? Five years? Ten? Twenty? All right. Oh, uh, thirty? <laughs> All right. You guys come up here. <laughs> what are we doing here? Um, so you guys know Gary Gygax? And you're, oh my God, he's nodding. All right, we <laughs> uh, we have a lot of experience ourselves uh, running and writing and playing games, but we'll occasionally ask you for some help because clearly we have um, some expertise in the audience as well. Where do you want to start? Prep? Start with prep. All right. Um, I'm terrible about prep. I will confess this up front. The secret to my killer game mastering prep these days while being a publisher and writer is um, I run an awful lot of pre-written scenarios like those adventure paths that Brandon alluded to and a lot of one-shot, one-night Call of Cthulhu kind of adventures. So I used to be full of tips and tricks for homebrewing your own material I did a lot of playtest when I was writing the Midgard campaign setting, um, and I have since then fallen back into the habit of pre-generated modules. I realize that a lot of people don't necessarily. Hey, it's all right. Our other panelists, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Sir Victory. I run SVD Press. Uh, I do a lot of work for Cobalt Press, and I manage some of the web services. Hey. And Eric Frankenhaus. Frankenhaus. You always get my name. Yeah. That's what, how it is in my phone, even. Is it really? Yeah. Frankenstein. Frankenhaus. Learn to spell your good. players' names. <laughs> <laughs> Want to introduce yourself? I'm Eric Frankhaus. I run a small video game company. I do a good amount of cartography. I've won Iron GM two years in a row, first place, and uh-huh. placed for eight years. No, it's <clears> definitely Frankenhaus. Definitely. Defin- it definitely. says right here. <laughs> it's in definitely. print. You typed it in. Actually, <laughs> Uh, so these are our so 
<clears throat> I just confess that I run a whole lot of pre-made scenarios and I don't homebrew as much as I used to a year ago even. Um, you guys run a whole lot of homebrew. Home so we tried to get representation <clears throat> on the panel. We quizzed everybody here. We made sure there were no players in the room. Um, we removed six people. Yeah. Forcefully. Out on their so I missed that. Front. I'm late for five minutes. You should have seen me in action. I mean, <laughs> I just... <laughs> he's wiry. Mm. Uh, and we were just getting started on game prep. And I was saying, hey, I run pre-gen modules these days, but that's not always the case. Uh, we can get into some homebrew tips and Iron GM tips. I just want to hear from the audience. How many of you homebrew everything? Like everything. Oh, it's just this side of the room. Okay. And <laughs> how many of you run, like, adventure paths and modules and things from... Uh-huh. It's, all right. Both. Um, <laughs> we didn't mean to split it up that way, but it seems to have worked out. All right. We'll address our remarks accordingly. Um, I mean, homebrew is more work, is the thing. And to do it well and be an Iron GM and win Iron GM two years running... What's the secret to that success? See, that's that's a loaded gun. I actually think homebrew for me is quicker. Um, doing pre-written adventures to me always reminded me of being in college and having to do studying from homework again. So I really stopped doing that for a while, and all my notes just get compiled into something. But um, homebrew to me, I started doing it not only for that. I wanted stuff that just wasn't out there, which is probably why most of you are doing it. You wanted something that's not on the market. I run a steampunk Victorian horror world for most of my stuff. And... Um, my, my secret is to let your players build 90% of your stuff. Yes. Um, I mean, if you're a player and didn't know that, sorry, uh, you're doing all the work. <laughs> um, but I actually, a lot of my prep time for the characters, and that's where a lot of my world comes from. So as I build a section of my world through that story arc, I'll move to another one next time. And I've been doing what I call um, defining moments. So if you ever do character stuff, I'll kind of go into that and that's how I've built my world recently. It's been way less work. Yeah, we've, in, in my home game, we found Adam Daigle and I had a group together since high school and, um, you know, I'm 38 this year and so we've been together a long time and we, about the same time Adam went to work for Paizo and our group kind of split up and our, our GM departed for warmer waters for a couple of years and we actually played our first game just two nights ago in a new campaign and we sat down and we had a couple of months where we, you know, really got together, him and I, what are we going to do with the new group, how are we going to do this, and I don't want to piss in my own well, but we, uh, <laughs> we the first thing, the first discussion we had was, was we weren't going to do APs, even though he's a teacher, he's a busy guy. We found that our group had started to tread water over years because it got to the point where we felt like we didn't even really need to take notes. Yep. You know, very like much th so. this is uh, we are yeah, going to be so. led by the hand through this adventure, mm -hmm. and you know, if we forget something, the DM can just look it up. You know, I'll make a, a, a knowledge <laughs> good check or whatever. Good improv notes afterwards. Like. Yeah. It just it just killed it killed enthusiasm. We we felt like we were you know we were just uh, sitting around trading math mm -hmm. for someone else's game. Game. And so, um, you know, and we were lucky enough to recognize this problem. We started afresh. We actually 
got two new players that had never played before. Some guys I board gamed oh, with. It didn't even call some of our best friends who we've been gaming with for years. It just in an effort to try to bring some new blood to our gaming group. New bodies do and, that. Uh, and yeah, and like you said, absolutely let the players do the work. You know, abandon the, what the GM is trying to do, which is hard for me <laughs> as a GM who really likes intricate adventures, but abandon that and, and focus on what the players tell you they want to do as opposed to an AP, which is going to have this set structure. And if you want to take six weeks off to craft a magic item, well, you really can't because the world's going to end in that time. <laughs> yeah, and you've got to run off to the, the evil necromancer's dungeon first. So, yeah. yeah, I think there's lots of good reasons to do homebrew. And if your players do most of the work, you're golden. And uh, I think one of the great secrets of better game mastering is bring in better players. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been playing Call of Cthulhu with the same group for, oh yeah, 15 years now. And they're all awesome. And we take turns playing the keeper role, the game master role. And that keeps it fresh for us because they're almost all industry professionals. And they're all super great role players. You have a preloaded... That's not So that's fair. not fair, right? <laughs> but the people who show up at Iron GM are committed players too, right? They are. They got an hour to build their stuff. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you so, know your stuff and you're out. You know, you don't have to be working in the RPG field to be good at it. Uh, I just happen to be lucky and have that group. Um, and and so, yeah, trading the GM role is the, the tip I'd share because we love one-shots and and short arcs, and Call of Cthulhu is very conducive to, yeah, let's kill everybody and start over, right? Um, that's that's fine. Um, other games are less bloodthirsty or less uh, less preset for, for TPKs. Um, I wanted to bring Sursa in on this because SVD Press is known for uh, cutthroat, ruthless, take-no-prisoners kind of <laughs> adventures. Um, so the killer adventure, killer GM combo kind of works there. Uh, you're known for fourth core and for being. Um, Sounds like we're taking off. It's a train. <laughs> yeah. I know. Wow! I start talking about Sursa and the heavens rumble. That's great. Uh, <laughs> what an serious skill! I'm out. Uh, there's nothing. You're else too ominous for me, sir. Um, <laughs> But well, no. I wore my Kesher shirt yesterday, so I guess I didn't copy <laughs> today. Uh, I just wanted to ask, like, what is it about that uh, style of play that that like resonates with players and makes it successful? And like, what are your tips? See, that's, that's a tough one because I think that in my experience, a lot of people are drawn to it for different reasons. I'll give you an example. Kind of. Uh, when I about a year after I started doing all this stuff, writing adventures, publishing them, uh, doing that sort of thing, I had a lot of people who would come to me and they say, "You know what? I really." don't like character death, I don't like the whole classic dungeon crawl, but one of the things that got worked into it was they enjoyed kind of the uh, the narrative and like the player player skill aspect to it. I mm-hmm. hate that term, but they enjoyed and having to engage the game at sort of a, a different, I don't say a higher level, but a different level, as opposed to like, hey, I got my my stats and I can do damage and I have a base attack bonus and the character sketch is pretty cool, um, but they like sitting down and having to solve puzzles, having to think about what's going on in the adventure uh, as a person sitting at the table as opposed right. to sort of rolling their way through. Um, so I think... So that, a strategic level? Yeah, or there's, it's almost... Level? Yeah, but there's also another part of it because one of the things I'm, I'm often prone to saying is that a lot of people kind of compare D&D to like chess, so it's kind of a tactical game, right? Um, I don't. The way I approach my adventures, even my home games, I, I really take my inspiration from like casinos. So I, I, all right, I, explain that. So basically, because I'm not making any money from my players. No, I make no. all kinds of cash from my players because I extort them. But no, what happens is 
it, it, it's a really rough metaphor, but the idea is that casino games are kind of skill-driven, but largely it's spectacle, and it's and it, and a diversion, and it's a game of luck. So, and I, and I embrace that, because for me, that's what D&D is. It's largely just a game of like moving dice and numbers around, and, and there's a spectacle aspect to it, which makes it... Uh, it's something different than a home game. I can't really yes. speak to homebrew games as well, but for a lot of convention stuff I write, like we've been doing Tower of Gygax for a couple of years. We did Tower last night. And it's it's a spectacle that people like, like when you go to a car race. Like you play a fourth core module for the same reason you go to a car race, because you want to watch someone crash in the median <laughs> and explode. And everybody's like, yes, I beat the spread. And so it's, that's I get that. I, I actually heard a similar... Somewhat related uh, philosophy to like engage players from uh, Rob Hainsu. Um, he was talking about Thirteenth Age, um, but it sort of applies more generally. Where he said his his home game is often uh, started off confrontational. Right? He'll say, "Okay, I'm the game master. Um, you're going into the dungeon of death, and you know you're not going to make it. I'm, it's my job to make your lives miserable and run you through the the, the ringer." Um, and you know, bring it, guys. Um, and that sort of, of it, yeah. yeah, throwing down the gauntlet was yeah. the element there that I said, you know, I haven't really done that to my players in some time. And it's what you were saying mm-hmm. about shaking up the player mix yeah. and giving them a little more freedom. <clears throat> but it's like uh, I wouldn't say freedom. I would say giving them enough rope to hang themselves. Ah, it's yeah. yeah, <laughs> a better distinction. Yeah. Uh, but you know. At, Occasionally, I think challenging your players, either with sort of a casino style, throw down the gauntlet, give them enough rope, yeah. uh, makes a huge difference because players, especially in long-running campaigns, we've been talking like the 10- and 20-year games, you do get stuck in a rut. It's um, really stagnant after a while. Yeah, and a, a trick that I learned recently from a second edition <clears throat> game I was in a couple years back was uh, the Game Master said, well... We're not too invested in these characters yet. It's going to be about a one-year game. I'm going to make all my rolls in the open. And you're going to make all your rolls in the open. We're going to use big dice so everybody can see, right? He had poor eyesight. Whatever. It's like one of my players would kill me for that. He cheats. And and he said, I'm going to be throwing disintegrates and all kinds of instant death stuff at you because it's second edition D&D. he just sort of said, up front, this is, you know, at first level it might not be so bad, but by the end of the year, expect to lose some characters. Oh, all right. Well, that's setting the bar differently, and it made us play um, better. I think. Wait, you have to really think before you step into a room willy-nilly and get yourself shot and disintegration beam. Yeah, a lot of that is, is play style and uh, setting expectations early, right? I mean, Rob Haynes, who threw, threw down his challenge uh, at the start of his campaign, I think every fourth core module has been pretty upfront about uh, take no prisoners is our philosophy. Yeah. And it's crucial, too. I mean, setting expect- if there's one thing that like I want to highlight just from this con is setting expectations. I ran... Uh, a version of a module I wrote called Hellrush, which is a full, full-length, full 4E adventure module. There's like 10 rooms and puzzles and traps and monsters, but the hook was you have 20 rounds straight up to beat it. Goal initiative, start of the adventure, you have 20 rounds. We're going to do this square by square, but the people who, who bought tickets for it apparently can't read because it says straight up, like, this is expert mode stuff, you know, this is, you need to play this adventure before to get through it, and it's going to kill you constantly. Be ready for that. Be prepared for that, and they weren't, and it was a horrible time. No. And, and partially, in part, it was my fault and not communicating the expectations maybe well enough in the description. But also, it's it's whether you're running a con game or a home game, you have to make the assumptions clear. Yeah. Especially if you're using a system that, like like Fourth or maybe even Pathfinder, where there are certain 
sort of, I don't want to say styles, but like assumptions and flow and, and patterns baked into the game. Mm-hmm. And if you diverge from those, some people don't care. They're like, that's awesome. And other people get, have a really sharp allergic reaction to that. Well, right, because it's not the play style they expect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anytime you break the mold, you have to redefine it, or your players are going to be either pissed off at you or they're going to take you out back. I mean, you have to make sure you tell them, this is what we're going to be doing. And uh, that's what I was saying when I, the defining moments I've been doing, I've been doing like a small paragraph blurb, either two people talking about somebody or a journal entry from someone, and it doesn't say like what class they are, what they play, nothing like that. But it may be a guy and his daughter, the only surviving family members that are left in this family, um, but there's some guilt-ridden stuff in there. And once they pick one of these, say I put eight people up, they pick one, I give them two secrets afterwards and say, this is the things that people don't know about you. Just define the character from there. Make your class, make what you want. But what ended up happening with that is I found my players are way more invested in what they're doing because they're not looking at all the numbers up front. They invest in the story aspect, and then they make their numbers match what they're doing. I don't know about the rest of you, but my players are total munchkins. They will sit down and crunch numbers until they find the way to hit something for the most damage. And all I'm going to do is add 20 hit points to a monster, so it's not that easy. Like, you gotta, you got to stop doing that. Make something that you're going to be invested in. So we did that, and the first time I did it, our players went from wanting to play like a six-month campaign to like a two-year campaign because they felt like they put so much time in their characters, which really... They didn't have to do squat. They just read a paragraph and it sparked something, and they went from there. Um, but it's and I let them create one secret. Let your players create something. Anytime they make a character, if they can make like an organization for your world, it doesn't have to be in depth. Doesn't have to be statted out. Just give me something. So when I put it in later, you get that little happy feeling, like your first date. Like, oh, I know what this is. I made it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Your players will love you, even if you know yeah. nobody else. And knows it, it's sort of a get out of jail free card too. You know, yeah, it's that day you, know, you, you start to think about a rut it. And you got throw it. it on the table. You know, he made that group of. Uh, Horrible doctors that like make right. life dolls out of dead bodies for people. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna run that this week. This yeah, is right. really easy, and it's great. I mean, and then halfway through we'll do it again. And the other thing I've been doing is, um, if it's stale, like you're saying, too long playing a game, I'll bring the monsters in from a previous thing that killed and I'll let them play that. They don't know it. They'll sit down on note cards. We'll play the first two hours and maybe a five six hour session as the monsters, and they're like. Well, we just killed people who had children. What? Well, yeah, I know you're bad guys. I know you think you're lawful, right. but he's not. It shakes it up. Like they really kind of think about what they've been doing. I would pose to the other panelists how you address the age-old problem of of player investment when you know you come to the table with this grand campaign. Yeah. And it's going to be Dark Ages themed, and you're all going to play Inquisitors yeah, and all this. And then what was that? Well, no. And then somebody shows up with you know a, a totally out of place. Well, I wanted to play a gunslinging, you know, steampunk style pistolier, you know, and you're trying to run a. You're ruining my character. You know, the answers get you know, name player. of the rose campaign. So how do you? It, it always happens. You, yep. you know, uh, what is worth more, the DM's goals or the players' goals, and how do you balance that? Well, this is a DM panel, so clearly it's the DM's goals. Uh, but I, it's really hard to balance if you don't um, give your players a chance to create some secrets on their own, yep. and if you don't set expectations. Right? If most of our Call of Cthulhu games. Right up front, the the answer is, you're all servants in a manor house in 1890s England, right? Okay, we're all going to have to create servants for this, yep. right? It's like, so we've been given a task, and we're all thinking, let's make the most interesting character within that framework. And then, of course, the moment you show up at the manor house, things go horribly wrong. But um, that particular setup was all about the game master just saying, here's the premise, you can do whatever you want within that framework. Um, If you give people the opportunity to generate characters before you tell them the premise, 
then the gunslinging pistolier shows up, and I don't think it's the player's fault, right? They were thinking, what gets me most excited? Well, I want to play this character. Because Brandon hasn't really told me what it's about yet. He's being all what, what if he has told you what it's about? <laughs> well, you know. then it's the player's fault. Yeah, it's, like I said, you need a stable of players. to yes. no. um, It does happen. I think the last time I had that happen, we were playing a, uh, a modern game, if I'm not mistaken, and the guy wanted to build somebody in like full plate. And I'm like, have you played modern? Because a lot of times it's the players are set in this mindset of, I want to play fantasy. And you switch gears on them and you play Cthulhu. And they don't know how to switch with it. Like, they're just, they don't, it doesn't click. They're not a GM or where's they're a player. You know I mean? Yeah, where's my sword? And um, I usually build a general character. Like, this is an example of what it would be. But I try to skew it towards what I already know about them. They're in your group. You know what they like anyway. Play to that strength of, like, you know your player likes to do X, Y, and Z. And give them an example of a character. And be like, you can't use this one. Mm-hmm. But here's an idea of what, what it could be. Don't stat it out. Just give them an idea. Usually they'll go along. If they don't kick them out, get a new player. So <laughs> that's a whole separate panel. Yeah, that's right a there. whole separate <laughs> panel. How to evict? Um, How to break up with your group? <laughs> it is. It, it is breaking. This up. is why I love if short you, arcs. Not me. I break up with players at the end of a short arc. I can put up with this guy for another month. Right. Mm. Well, then you you pull from each one of those small pools and build a better group. But um, no, it's. It does happen, though. It's rough. It really sucks. It is. <laughs> what was your solution in this case? Well, the problem I always run into is not quite the fish out of water, but it, it never fails. And this affects me as a player, too, right? When, you know, well, this is going to be set in this city, and everybody's like, all right, I'm thinking up my thief. You know, I'm thinking this up. And then somebody shows up with a damn druid. You're like, what are you doing with a druid in an urban campaign? You know, and it's, well, I, I don't sleep in the inn. I go to the woods to sleep. And it just never fails. Of course, I think I get more upset about that as a player than as a GM. Because I'm like, what are you doing? Are you playing an outcast? So, um, I... It's a tough thing to handle because, yeah, then you're you're imposing on someone else's fun, right? Because yeah. they're they're trying to bring something, which is why I posed the question in the first place. Because yeah. it's a difficult conundrum. You spin their story though, like if it's a druid and they're outside of the city, there's always somebody from X Y Z place that could make sense in yours. I think that's the hard part as a GM is to make that work. You have to make that connection between A and B. If he's a druid and he doesn't want to be an urban druid, which is always the cure to that. You have to find a way that he's either trading, doing something in the city, all those common things that you know we think we know, we forget about, right. um, or uh, you kill that character off. And bring <laughs> else. Uh, mm. But you can usually connect. And he comes back with a ranger. Nice job. Yeah. Mm. yeah right. right. If I could give kind of a, I don't want to say a counterweight, but sort of a different perspective on this. Uh, I'm coming from a different kind of universe where questions like. What are player motivations? What are DM motivations? Yeah. And what if mm-hmm. it? Uh, they're about as meaningful as asking that question in a game of Monopoly, mm-hmm. because I don't care. And, you're, and you, I mean, seriously, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's you know the convention, the tournament, adventure world, the fourth war world. It's it's a game. It's like a pretty much a glorified board game. It's right? crunch. Yeah. And yeah. so like you know nobody really cares what character you're bringing because I'm just gonna stab them in like 15 minutes. Right. Or, but again, it's like it's it's. I don't think there's enough room. To, to have those kinds of questions come up because we're not necessarily dealing with a narrative. Like a lot of these sort of speak to how do I preserve some sort of sense right. of narrative coherency? Yep. How, do yep. I, how do I you know, twine this together? But there's a whole other world of a play out there and some might even say a lot of the, of the old school stuff follows in that where let's, if there's going to be any kind of storytelling or any kind of these themes, let them emerge from the play itself. So I don't know who I was talking to. I think it was Steve Winter, and he's like, I'm running a Barrow Maze game. Oh, and yeah. Barrow Maze is just I'm like, in that game. Yeah, are you? Yes. Well, you can kind of speak to this, but he was, he was telling me, he's like, you know, there really isn't, if you've ever read Barrow Maze, it's like just 
this like bunch of black and white page, and it's like room one, skeleton, room two, skeleton, room three, two skeletons, room four, empty room. It's a trick. Um, but, but he's like, even though this stuff is so bare bones, uh, we just let the story sort of emerge from it and the narrative emerge from it. But you can also play it in such a way where it's like, you're here and your goal is to, to kill Monster X, defeat Track Y, solve Puzzle Z. I don't care if you're an urban druid or, you know, a regular yeah. druid. Like, I... It's all just, you're just pawns. Those always turn into comic strips for me. Like, all the players where they don't know what they are in the show when you're doing a dungeon crawl. By the end of it, you have Order of the Stick. Like, that's what happens. (laughs) And it's great, right? I mean, the emergent properties you're talking about, it's Mm -hmm. like, well, the players are creating their own fun. You're just Mm -hmm. creating an environment that is uh, conducive to that. That's just full circle expectations, though. You go in knowing there's no narrative. Your job is to swing a sword. And loot things. And loot things, of course. The two jobs. Yeah. Although the, I guess I think I think that, that idea of, of emergent storytelling, emergent narrative is, is crucial even in games mm-hmm. really differently because that helps LA some of those problems is I'm not gonna have this really rigid set of standards. And that's because I fell into that trap when I first started DMing years ago, is that you get in this mindset of I'm gonna write this novel and then I'm gonna invite my friends over who I probably don't even like and I'm just gonna read my I'm gonna read my novel right, to them. Right. And I'm, I'm gonna be like, dudes, this is such a great story and half of them have already left, the other half is playing, you know, like triple try on it. Well, this is like where I wound up with flavor text, right? Originally it was, I'm going to set the scene and Mm -hmm. the mood and the tone. I was all about the purple prose. And, you know, maybe, (laughs) okay, I was 14, so there were reasons. A little high guy Gaxian. Yeah, a little high guy Gaxian. And, And that has fallen away and gotten pared away over time to now it's like, well, I'll still do read aloud. Right, because like okay, it's the start of the session. We got to recap last time, and I got to tell them a little about where they're headed. But then encounter by encounter, it's if there's no clue, if there's no hook, if there's no deadly moment of danger in what I'm reading, like you know, the spears are coming out of the walls, guys. So what are you doing? Um, then I'm wasting my time, right? I, the butterflies in the meadow, unless they're death swarm butterflies that will land on you and suck your soul. What is this, what is this first level? Come yeah, on. come on, right? It's got to be rough. <laughs> that harkens back to the pre-written stuff, too. Um, I, I don't play as a player very often, and I sit down in a con, and the guy starts reading the flavor text. I'm like... Flavor text is always too long. Oh, Jesus, how long is this? Um, your players don't know where the flavor text is. Make it up. Yep. They don't know what the room looks like. They don't know what's going on. What was a fire room can be an ice room. They don't know. It's just one word difference. Like right. Change it to whatever you want. I've, I've learned anything that uh, looking down at your book and reading flavor text oh, breaks emergence with your characters. and mm-hmm. it, it breaks that respect your characters are supposed to, your players are supposed to have for you. So I'll look at it and I may read over it while they're doing other stuff and go, okay, I kind of know what this is. Right. And I'll make something new up because they don't know unless they've played that module before. And if so, guess what? You just got a new module. So it's it's one of those things. I don't, and I don't write flavor text. So again, I have a oh, plot I write web. like three sentences. Right, I have yeah. a plot web. Every NPC I have is a name, maybe a defining yeah. character that they have, mm-hmm. and then um, the only other things behind them is like I said, I always have a secret for something because it's a plot hook for later. So if yeah. George the bartender used to be super special during the Prohibition, well, maybe he was actually a Nazi and he's in the U.S. and he's you know a spy. Nobody knows it. I mean, never bring it up. But six campaigns later, when they go back to the bar, I still have something about George. So it's and those notes are that big. Is that his real name? Sure. <laughs> George. It's undercover. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's, yeah, I don't like flavor text that much. I, I like flavor text because it reminds me of what was important about this room because the stat blocks in the homebrew stuff I run tend to be, you know, oh, this monster is on page 235 of the Monster Man, right? It's like, uh, I'm not... I don't even open that thing anymore. Well, <laughs> I'm playtesting a lot. Yeah, you have to. It's stats. <laughs> it's stats, so I got I to gotta go buy those. But... Um, but, you know, I'm not going to spin up a new stat block for every monster. Nope. I'm going to spin up a plot point or a secret, or I'm yep. going to write a short section of uh, flavor text that says, this will terrify the halfling. Good. Let's put that in. Well, that, that actually that brings up a, another, another table contract, as it were. And uh, that was another conversation we just had in our group with this retooling that I, I think is, is an effective one to have. And that's just uh, a player investment in, in the GM's trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, in... This most recent game, just Wednesday night. Again, it's really fresh on my mind. My GM buddy who's running this campaign, Pathfinder campaign, starts off zombie encounter. And I'll be damned if his zombies aren't taking move and standard actions, right? And I know that a zombie only gets a move or a standard action. And we had already discussed items like this where, listen, let's just do this. Let's forget about the stat blocks. Yep. Let's just play this game because we had just they're come fast out of zombies, this. Right, exactly, let it go. Exactly. And that's what I told myself was, yeah, they're just fast zombies. And so I think it's a really important, if you, if you get in a situation where you really, especially in a long-term campaign where you feel like you're getting in a rut to retool that and go listen guys I'm not just gonna I'm not just gonna give your character a heart attack and you're gonna drop dead like establish a trust whether it's a conversation go out away from the game table and just say listen you know we're gonna do this but let's get away from the rule book some because you know we got buried in them we got to the point we would end up in an hour argument about somebody taking a five foot step and it just you know just get away from it I mean that was important to us when we were a little younger it was like we really want to get this so it's fair but you know, it, it breaks immersion, and it's it's a game. It's a game all its own. So it's its own simulation. But you know, I think it's very important, especially if you get in a rut, to, to just retool that, reset, and and reestablish that trust that that you're not there to, you know, that you can step away from those rules. There's it, ever a five foot step argument? Take the map away. Yeah, it's the one thing I learned. They start arguing like, no, it's cool. We don't need this tablecloth. It like you don't. Yeah, it's gone. And then bring it back for the next encounter. They're like. They'll forget about that five-foot argument because while well, they have to reset their minis, um, there's no grid anymore. I've done it numerous times. Yeah, my, I've I have done a crunch-heavy yeah. group, and uh, oh, I'll God, take that things away. whole second edition campaign, we had an initiative tracker. We never once brought out a grid, and it drove me crazy at first. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. It's very that's freeing. Fast. We ran two-hour sessions like, you know, after work on a weeknight. And, uh, you know, five, six encounters. Right? It's the boxer of brief conversation. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's fast. It's really nice. All right. Um, we've covered a lot of ground, and we may have a few questions. Um, I, I think we could go on all day, but given the depth of experience we had here earlier, I want to take just, like, three questions, and then, then it'll be back to us because, you know. Uh, can you give us some best practices for how you keep your stuff organized? Both electronically and physically for yes. all the stuff. Yeah. I don't do electronics because no matter how fast everybody thinks they are, you can still write quicker than you can type notes. Because mm-hmm. organization isn't so much like straight lines. It's, you know, something's on my note card or this way, or something's on my 
map have a underline and it's quicker for me to underline it or write something on an angle going that's a GM note if it's angled it's a GM note when you're flipping through your book you can find it programs just aren't quite that uh, the user interface isn't there so all my stuff's still in paper and if I do anything that's electronic it's after the thought and it's really electronic for me as my players all my electronic stuff for my players I use Google Docs for everything because I can be anywhere and use them and uh, my players have access to them. But at home, I'll be honest, I still use pen and paper, man. I've got to have that tactile element, even if it's a fully hyperlinked PDF. It's just, comes with it for me. you know, it's like, it's to me, it's like frozen on your iPad or whatever. It's like, <laughs> that's the only page that exists, even though you can just click on the rule you yep. need. What I do when I put all my notes together is I, I just cut, copy and paste from the PFSRD. Mm-hmm. Just drop every rule I might need. Oh, if this is a grappling creature, here's the grapple rules, and throw them in there, and then print that out. And, you know, <laughs> and, then, and, and then scribble all over it, you know, but I, I can't just reference my laptop. I don't even bring it to the table. That's why teachers still correct in red ink, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's quicker. I run everything off of two notepads for a campaign. One is the adventure I'm currently running. My notes, mm-hmm. stick the maps in. Uh, the other one is the campaign book, which I don't note things as, it's where the secrets and NPC yep. names go. It's like, it's not just this adventure. They're going to come back to this. Um, but since I'm running a lot of, of, of pre-gen stuff right now, it's like, well, I don't need to keep the adventure stuff. I just yellow sticky things. I mean, it is writing your adventure. You're it never looks selling sloppy. It yeah, I write in stuff where yeah. I used to never write in published materials. Now it's like there's uh, nothing better be, than that. That'll though. make them worth a little bit more. Like, uh, honestly, <laughs> I ran adventures when I used to run pre-written stuff, and I had time to study stuff. I would get one for my friend. And that was the best thing to see sidebar notes where you're like. Oh, I totally would have missed this. So if you run adventures, just write in your book and hand it off to someone later. You're not really going to run that again unless it's your favorite adventure. Yeah, um, it's one of the best things I think I've ever gotten was was uh, the old Tomb of Horrors with all notes in it from oh, like excellent. the GM who trained me when I was younger. I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever gotten. <laughs> so notes is in the whatever you're using. I got plot webs. I use plot webs a lot. Plot webs and flowcharts, just yeah. one page. I mean, this becomes a bigger problem the longer your campaign goes. True. Right? You have to reorganize it a point. I, I think, <laughs> you know, if it's a convention game and it's four hours long, the level of organization required is I need to know all ten of these rooms. You right? got a scream sheet. Right. And sheet. Yeah, exactly. So as long as you're like ready to go instantly on each encounter, you're good. Um, and the notes are who was paralyzed? Oh, right, that guy. So. If you want to do something a little crazier, a buddy of mine does. Uh, he was a detective turned into a private investigator and he does all his stuff on this wall in his room and it's pretty open like orange he has different colored stickies he writes like a homicide suspect chart homicide board it's one of the coolest (laughs) things ever seen it's not hard to do though because he just puts a piece of paper up sticks them up and dries lines between them and it's his players every time they walk in they're looking at the board yeah. And they're running a they're running cool. a Cthulhu in yeah. like 1980, like Vice City yeah. kind of thing, and it's really awesome to see. So the neon I'm contemplating doing that coming up. So if you want something different to do, Post-it notes are cheap, man. Yeah, and if I can kind of jump in, uh, yeah. I, I agree with everything that's been said, and I have like two other things to add. The first is one way to help keep organized is to prepare and write as little as possible. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and this is this is a problem I had when I, I started with third edition and then now I play fourth. And I would just, when I would write my notes for the games, I would write them out like every description, every monster stat block. But then it occurred to me, and I did this for, for this year's tower, is I realized that the fourth edition monsters, their stats are almost all the same. Like, really, the only difference is what you're describing when you're rolling your 2d8 or whatever damage it is or how many hit points. So I was like, all right, let's just abstract that stuff away. And now I have one single sheet 
that has the, the pre-calculated man. Like, this is a strong minion. This is a fast minion. This is a strong elite. This is a wizardly brute. And then the rest of it, you just make it up, right? So if you've only got one sheet, you need to keep track of with all these stats. Or if you've got, um, you know, prepare to improvise. It's kind of the, the second point I was going to make that dovetails off of that is you can get away with a lot at a game table if you just trust your improv skills and hone them and then just bring, like like you said, like I have a single note and then maybe a hook for the NPC, the it's rest of the in place, or, you know, let the players do the work. So, for, like, I don't think I've written more than, like, a page of notes. But I did the same with character sheets, too. Like, I went to an RPGA game and I showed up and they're like, what's your character sheet? And, like, it's a note card and I wrote the word cleric on it. And that was the whole character sheet. And How'd that go for It you? was amazing. I, got to, I punched a lich in the face. RPGA, and it was like, they didn't like... There was nothing he could do about it. It was happening. He, he could not stop us. That is one of the best things ever. I'm going to do that. So, but, but, yeah, but to answer the question like, a bit more seriously, is all the stuff they said is great, and I'm the same way. Like, I work, well, I work with computers every day. I have like three devices on or in me now. Yes. And, like, and I, I don't want to see these. When I'm at the gaming table, I want yep. to get away from it because I like the tactile thing. I like the social interaction. But yeah, if you want to keep things organized, it's like writing a computer. Oh, program. it's so it's old way school. easier to keep track of all your classes and your dependencies if you only have a couple classes, right? right. So yeah, just keep it lean. Simplify. Yeah. One nerdy point: buy a pen you love because mm-hmm. you're gonna be using it a lot if you do it this way. I went and bought a fountain pen, and this is yours. Yeah, that's what I've been using lately. It's yeah, <laughs> nice try. Um, but I buy a pen you love and just notes, man. There's something about it. It's so much easier in the long haul. You can transcribe it if it ever is going to get published. Yep. Alright. I uh, promise two more questions. One right here. You mentioned plot webs. Clue me in here. I'm clueless. Plot webs. Um, well, it starts with an idea. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> no, really, that's, ideas, love each other that's pretty much <laughs> what it is. It's it's the, all those circle diagrams you saw was a circle. And the, maybe the idea is the city is being invaded by XYZ. There's a line that comes off of it. When that happens, there's this. So it's a combination of all your thoughts kind of in a brainstorm and the lines that connect them. And I actually do a little more after I'm finished them. The plot web's in front of me. You have one sheet, same concept as one sheet. They're a circle. I maybe leave a little space to put a note. And uh, I highlight the path they take. So, like, if they go from, hey, this is the city, these are the things that are happening, what do they end up going to do? I'm going to say, there's an inn that's getting attacked, uh, there's a clock tower that's getting knocked over and falling on an orphanage, because that's just awesome. And then, um, <laughs> at the same time, maybe there's a ship that's crashing in and it's a plague that's sweeping over the entire city. What are your players going to handle? And it gives you that open world feel without doing all the open world notes. I don't know if you've ever seen the notes for Skyrim. If anyone plays video games, it's a nightmare. Don't look at it. It's too much. Same thing. It's just circles and lines and ideas. It's, it's ideas. It's the detective board. It's the detective board, board this for big. plot triggers, right? I mean, it's like locations and triggering events. You got it. And, and triggering character connections. And then you do a different between circles. Like circles could be your ideas. Squares could be an action. And then you may have a star for, like, things are going to be horrible for the players if they go there. And then the next page is just going to be notes on that. So at the top, you just write over that bubble was, and you can put notes there. And I'd even take that one step further. There's a thing I talk about in one of the Cobalt Guides to Game Design, uh, which is sort of bucketing your plot mm-hmm. webs. Um, so, you know, there may be an opening sequence. Yeah, yeah, zombies, orphanage. All right, great. And then at some point, you say, okay, I'm cutting the plot web here. 
right? And this is where, oh, they're in the dungeon at this point, and the dungeon starts to flood, right? Or it, it brings a whole new set of problems, right? Like the rats come out of the sewers, and the Necromancer King wakes up, and it's like the old plot web goes away, and that trigger means, oh, I move to page two of my plot web with a whole bunch of new circles and lines, um, which may have raised the stakes or changed the environment completely, whatever it is, so that... So that the first web never gets so tangled and it's like they feel stuck. Like, what do we do? We've done everything. We've explored the map. All the guys with the question marks. It's the concept of moving them out of one room in a dungeon to another, but at a larger scale, like from one part of the city to leaving the city to find out why. The other thing I do, too, is I have a bunch of different colored markers. Every GM does. At least I hope you do. Um, And I'll go around that section and be like, anything that happens in here, remember this place is all acid. Let's take a green marker and run around it and say acid, DC, XYZ. And that's that's my note. That's that's all there is to it. If you were to classify your players into two basic groups, jerks. One being, <laughs> one being munchkins and one being you know role players. How would you classify them? And to your point, I use Evernote. It's a free app, mm-hmm. easy to write little notes and keep yeah. it all yep. all in line. It's great to use for that. I'm also beta testing RealmWorks, which is kind of doing a web thing. Yep. I am as well. Huh? But uh, what what are your players? Because you seem to be in this kind of unique world of circles of you know people in the industry. So I'm guessing from the way you're talking that you probably have a lot of money. I have both. I don't know what you guys have. I have a non-industry group and an industry group. Yep. That's that's, and my industry people are uh, oddly not my munchkins right now. They were before. Um, Players, I guess players are defined by the actions they take. Like, if they're the one who takes four hours making a character in a game like, I don't know, the new Marvel Heroes mission only really take you 15 minutes to throw down some stuff, they're a munchkin. They're looking for the way to plumb that system and get the most out of their damage, stuff like that. Um, everybody, I think, can be taught to be one or the other, though. Yep. You know? And you can make appeals, too. I mean, I, I appeal to my group like, guys... Let's just cut out the optimization. You know, like maybe plan. Oh, if you're going to be a two weapon fighter eventually, yeah. You know, plan on taking the feats you need so you're not a total imbecile. But, you know, like just don't. You know, we had a problem with a tripping monk in a previous campaign when it was just like, what? what, Is that really fun for you? Just tripping everything and tying them up in a knot? Combat after combat after combat? With a wolf pet. Yeah, I I know, exactly. And and so it was like, can, can we get away from that ultra optimization and specialization? Just make a character for Christ's sake, you know? And and the appeal worked. I make people leave their books at the door and write their their character idea down before they're allowed to open their books. Mm-hmm. That's where the defining moment came from. Or yeah, if we're doing more, like you're saying like a hardcore style one. Same with phones. We had a guy who had a phone and first he was playing games and he was sketching and pays attention and uh, we made him put it away. I'm like, dude, no more. I know you feel like you're in high school and I'm telling you you can't have your phone, but you can't have your phone. Mm-hmm. I killed a guy. Yeah, and I'm, yes, your kid was. Do you encourage that optimization? It, 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 uh, given your I actually, style? I actually don't. Um, in large part because a lot of the challenges and the stuff that I run either at home or for conventions, at the end of the day, the mechanics really don't help you or make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's little pockets here and there where like, yeah, we're finding a lot of undead, so maybe I do some radiant stuff to make sure I, I can do more damage. But really, like, when you're faced with a lot of puzzles and really high-level sort of things to think about, like, you can power game all you want. It's really not going to help you. But there's a way... Now, we're beating munchkins over the head, so if you're in this room, sorry your head's sore. Uh, There is something good about munchkins you can do, though. Uh And I don't know if you guys do this, but 
I'll make them make a group dynamic that's mechanical oriented. So that when they came out with teamwork feats, I'd been doing that for years in Pathfinder and that stuff. Like as a group, you can do this. That guy takes the reins during that moment, and he's still happy. Like you can appease both sides. So we had a group that were all ex guards from a city. And uh, I was like, you guys are ex-guards. Remember, you train together. Your skills need to match up. You, you need to harmonize. There has to be something. Mechanically, there has to be something. You've done the story. Mm-hmm. Mechanically, there has to be something. And that guy's like, I have ideas. And he slides his book over of like all those crazy characters he's done. And uh, it's nice, though, because people are story-oriented. Now I don't have to do as much work. So you've kind of appeased both parties at the same time. Uh, yep. I mean, you can even do this in less mechanically... Uh deep games like Call of Cthulhu, right? That servants right. thing I was talking about earlier. It's like, well, part of what we did as character creation was, well, everybody's going to split up the Call of Cthulhu skill base so that we've covered all the bases. Our players do it in every game. Every right. Event. It's like, of course, because the chances of doing well in the scenario, having a good time, and not feeling frustrated by one bad skill set yeah. uh, diminish. Uh, also, in defense of... of Optimization and munchkinization. I mean, I've run a lot of playtests. I want to know that the groups that do those, who prefer that playstyle, um, are still going to have a good time with yeah. this. And I've got a couple of players who are just like, you know, wrote the netbook of feats. Uh, you know, just crazy about skill chains, whatever it is that they're they're into. Um, and they will. I'll just ask them. You know, Siegfried, could you just like max out this character? His name's Siegfried. Oh yeah. Wow, that's <laughs> you're doomed. Uh, he had a lot of fun with fourth edition, trying to find the holes. I mean, he's just looking for yeah. for the opportunity. And I'm like, could you make the character that's going to frustrate the hell out of me uh, and break make, this? Please. Break this, please. Yeah. And other people may play uh, a more story oriented style, but I know at least somebody is in there saying, well, you know, actually, I can do 36 points at first level. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's possible. Yeah, that's true. Did I answer your question? No. Okay. Oh, can we try again? I was asking more of what, what is your mix. I mean, I, oh, oh, who do we have? 50-50 right now is mine. 50-50 in my player group and in my industry group, the absolute opposite. They're all narrative-driven. So um, I like a mix, though. I prefer a mix. I like a little bit of each because that allows me to satisfy the stuff I like as a GM. If I want an adventure that's crunch and munch, I can do it. And if I want narrative, I have those people too. So I definitely both of them in my group. Oops. You've got a mostly narrative group with like two hardcore strategy and tactics guys who are um, perfectly willing to go along with the, the narrative guys because they've been playing a long time. Um, but but their moment to shine is always, hey, let's roll initiative. And then they're off, right? That's their part of the game. Um, so it's not quite 50-50. It's like 30%. On the, on the numbers and 70 narrative. Yeah, mine's kind of a, I mean, it, it's a mix. It's hard to say because there really isn't, there's no power game really, but there's also no storytelling. So we're, I guess we're just, I don't know, we're board games. So you're gelatinous cubes? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, it's really tough to explain, and it's also very early in the morning for me, but. Yeah. <laughs> I still taste whiskey. It's, just, it's, it's I mean, I, I like the point that was made earlier that I don't think that players are a single archetype all the time. No. Like, I mean, I mean, I'm one of these people. Like, by and large, I like the real sort of board gamey, like made a game, death trap, dungeon crawl stuff. But I also like I played a traveler game that was almost entirely <laughs> and yeah. it was Traveler Star Wars, and we shot evil Old Jedi school. Leia, and it was the best thing ever. And we blew up the Death Star, not that Scrub Luke, but so um, we. It's 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 tough because I think it depends on the game. 
like I'm also really huge into things like Apocalypse World, like Dungeon World, and those sorts yeah. of things. And in those games, you know, a lot of people who will be just min-maxing or just not caring at all about about optimization, um, they'll come to a different system and they'll change the way they play. Their play style. Because the game, like, if you're going to play in Dungeon World, it's going to be less min-maxing because there's nothing to min-max. And it's, and it's good to take a step away from your normal game and maybe run it. Call it Spons is a great example. Dungeon World, any of those. Yeah. My, my, my optimized, specialized, tripping monk player... Uh, I ran a Call of Cthulhu game, and he played this meek Russian Jewish librarian, and he never broke character, and he, you know, he, and it was amazing. He just this transformation that went over him and his brother, who's the other min maxer in the group, uh-huh. uh, and who played. It was crazy because you know they went from you know yes, I rolled a nineteen. That's gonna be, you know, I just you know spitting out mechanics and and knowing exactly what they could do to tie a monster in knots to totally discarding. You know, once they were away from a feat system and feet trees and all that to where it was just percentages you know they just abandoned it it was fascinating to watch the, those sessions how and it was like why can't you bring that to our D D game like you know yeah, not breaking character D&D. And, yeah. exactly and and there was it was you know it was a big revelation yeah, which is why the players are adaptable i don't ever give them credit but they're adaptable and, and that's i mean i guess it's a gm tips panel so gm tip right um Play and run other games. Yes, yes. My Very big important. thing, especially yes. when you just do nothing but play D anD D, it seems like those those archetypes for D anD D players is sort of like, well, this is this is how all players are. Yep. But really, I mean, maybe you guys don't share this opinion, but I think D anD D is a fairly narrow slice of the entire role playing universe. Very true. And especially all the new indie games. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And when you years. experience these other games, you learn that again, a lot of people they they don't fit an archetype as well in different scenarios, or there's just a whole other realm of experience. Like, you know, not every role-playing game is about going into a dungeon and, you know, punching a lich in the face. Play dogs in the vineyard. Yes, one good example, I just picked up Don't Rest Your Head. Um, Dread is super awesome. And, you know, but as a DM, though, like, it will just make you a better DM because you're experiencing new ways of of handling situations. It gives you practice. Like, Dungeon World has totally re... What's the, what's the opposite of acclimate? It's weaned me off the battle mat. Because yeah. when I first try to play without it, and I'm, so, and I'm just sitting there, and it feels like you're riding a bike for the first time at yep. the age of 26. And I'm like, man, this is, this is terrifying, but the wheels are off. But then you just, you know, you, you experience it, you get used to it, your players get used to it. And that's the interesting thing, too, is you may have to bring players along and change their style. They may be a power gamer. I had this happen. I ran Dungeon World. Someone came from 3.5, and they're like, I'm a druid. And my powers literally say, you can turn into an animal. That's awesome. And they just they freeze yeah. because they're like, so what's what's the mechanical, what's the mechanical incentive? Hey, mechanical the box. Thing? And it's like, well, the mechanical incentive is that you can turn into a wolf. That's pretty cool. I can't turn into a wolf. Like mm-hmm. short related, not yeah. with your question, related to your question, but not that. Play other games, and what I end up doing is I steal rules from other games and put them into my favorite system. I yeah. do it all the time. Yeah. Like the new experience fine. stuff, I, I change how I do experience. Like the escalation die, out. that's a great one to add to the table. Fun to steal Tons the escalation die. Thank I, you, Kobold Quarterly, yeah, for yeah. introducing that. Or those happy the, to. The, the leading questions and the bonds from yeah. Dungeon World. Like, ask steal. Even, even like the most power gamey uh, person is going to respond really well when you ask them leading yep. questions. Like, you know, somebody you know died in this dungeon. Who, who, who were they and what do you need to collect from them? Yeah, right. So even if, again, even if they're just all about crunch... There are things from in, in the indie world, I hate to say indie world, but other game systems beyond D&D. Yeah, any other games, period. Yeah, just steal from other games and bring it to your game. Yeah. That's how that's how homebrew worlds and rules came to be, man. It's playing other games. Like, I didn't like this in this game, but I really love that one thing. Take it. Just take, take it, it and go with it. publish it, give credit. But, I mean, right. take it. Yep. 
Thanks all right, awesome. I think we're pretty much out of time because we got to let the next panel in, and I got to run all the way across the con to my next panel. Uh, but thank you for your attention, and uh, yeah, thank you for your questions. <laughs>